Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this evening in Psalm 32. You can find it on page 462 of your pew Bible. This is God's Word. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray to that end. Our God, as we seek to understand your truth, what we need is your spirit. For these are merely words on a page without the aid and help the power of your spirit. And so we ask Oh, Lord, speak. Speak life into us. Speak Christ into us. That what we hear and see is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thursday afternoons uh, often are our intern meetings. I didn't ask for their permission to share this, so... Uh, it'll be a little too late for them to get upset with that. I won't share anything embarrassing. Uh, but the question has come up a few times about how do you work through ministry, whether it's complaints or challenges or circumstances, what is preparation for sermons and the priority of the Word of God in your life. And there's a, there's a reminder that I'm often called to. Spurgeon, uh, maybe you've heard it before, he talked about to preachers what it would be like to prepare to preach to people. And he always had this statement in which he would say, the pastor is meant to wear the sermon before he walks in. Now, lest you think I'm wearing it so well, I do not struggle with what we're going to read. My family could attest differently. But I think this is one of those unique psalms that when you read it, everyone immediately can see the conviction and can see the comfort and goodness and grace of the gospel. And so tonight, that's what we want to look at, the blessing of confessing. And so I want to help us understand what it is that we're looking at. If you had your Bible in front of you and you saw that first line, 
what you see is it says it's a mascal of David. And perhaps your Bible has a footnote there and it says something to the effect of this is a musical or liturgical term. Uh, what they're suggesting there, they don't technically know. But most scholars, in fact, would say that's not so much a musical term, perhaps not even a liturgical term. What it's meant to do is it's an instruction term. It's meant to provide counsel and instruction. It is to teach you and to lead you. And so the question is, when we read this psalm, what is it? What is the instruction that David has for us? I think simply it's a gospel psalm. That is what we are reading. It's a picture, a portrait of the gospel. Luther calls this a Pauline psalm. And the reason for that is if you know anything about Luther and his conversion, and I'll refer to it later on, but he, he struggles with a great amount of guilt. And the reason why he refers this to a Pauline psalm is because he has in mind what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, Paul is arguing a foundational doctrine of the faith, and that is justification by faith alone. And what you read in Romans chapter 4 is Paul's going to say part of a picture of what that means to be justified by faith. He's going to refer to Genesis 15. And the reason why he's referring to Genesis 15 is he is using the portrait of Abraham and what it means to believe and have that faith accredited to you as righteousness. But he quotes another person. When he scours the Old Testament and he wants you and I to understand what does it mean that we are justified by faith, he looks to David. And interestingly enough, with all the Psalms that David has written and all the stories that there are about David, this is the verse that he quotes to remind you and me that we are in fact justified by faith alone. And so Paul in Romans chapter 4 is saying to us, you and I, in fact, need to understand that there is such a blessing. There is such an understanding of salvation when we rightly understand what it means to confess sin. Now, if you've been with us over the course of many months, we've been studying the Psalter for quite some time, 32 that would perhaps mean 32 weeks, so you can see we've been in here for a while. But there's an observation to make about Psalm 32. It's only the second psalm that begins with the word blessed. The psalms open in Psalm 1 with the word blessed. And what are we learning in Psalm 1? Well, there's a blessing upon the man or, in fact, upon the woman who meditates on the law of God. And as you read it, what you're gaining understanding is there is blessing for those who keep the law of God. But in Psalm 32, we don't read it's blessing for law keeping. What we read is there is blessing for those who recognize they have broken the law and in fact confess it, confess sin. We're not law keepers, we're law breakers. And so I want to understand Psalm 32 by asking a series of questions. What is sin? We will look at that. What is sin? What are the effects of sin? What does God do with confessed sin? And how are we to respond? 
When we look at Psalm 32 and we ask the question, what is sin? David offers to us three words, or perhaps depending on how you're translating things, four words to describe sin, to tell us what it is defined as. He uses the word transgression, Pesach in Hebrew. And what it means, the, the connotation and we're, we are to understand is it's, a, it's an act of rebellion. When we understand the word of transgression, it is a rebellious act against God. It's a rebellious act against authority. It is saying no to God. Alexander uh, McLaren says this, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. And perhaps you have that verse that comes to mind. Some people would argue that Psalm 32 is a companion psalm of Psalm 51. We don't technically know that. But what do we learn in Psalm 51? That is the confession of David. And he is reminding to us the sin of what? He has killed Uriah. He has lied. He has had an affair with Bathsheba. And yet, when we recognize his sin, how does David define it? Whom has David sinned against? And he says, you only, O Lord, have I sinned against. And that's what McLaren is saying. That's what David's saying here. If we want to understand transgression, it is first and foremost, it is a rebellion against God. And until we have addressed our sin or our transgression as such, we haven't gotten to the bottom of it, how evil an act it is. It's a, in the words of R.C. Sproul, it's a cosmic treason against God. Any and every moment that we transgress the law of God. But David doesn't just use the word transgression to articulate the idea or doctrine of sin. He also uses, in fact, the word sin, chata, or in, it's actually related very closely to the word in Greek, harmadia. And what is it that they're talking about? It's this picture of uh, you're falling short. There's a mark there's a, there's a goal that you and I are supposed to be living towards, living for, and all we do is fail. We fall short of that goal. We do not accomplish that which we are set out and called to do. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. All have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. David says there's transgression, there's sin, there's iniquity. It's the the picture of, of, of twisting, of, of crookedness, of corruption. It's a, it's a distortion, a perversion of reality. What is true, we have twisted and we have made it crooked. And so what we know to be right, we don't do it. We have made what is wrong. It's, it's a picture of what Paul describes in Romans chapter 2, that we are approving of the evil things of society and of Culture, David is giving us a, perhaps you would say, a comprehensive view of sin. And if you kept reading in verse 2, he, he finishes with, in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's, 
It's a grand doctrine. It's a large and heavy doctrine. I think the confession of faith, the shorter catechism, offers to us a loaded but short definition. What is sin? It's any want or conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. Now, no child understood a single word of which I just said. So how do we in the Myers household define sin? It's doing what God said not to do and not doing what God said to do. That is what the shorter catechism is telling you. When we want to look at sin, it's not just acts, it's thoughts, it's desires. You and I know that. It's not doing what God has told us to do. And it's doing, in fact, what he said not to do. And so David says there's, there's no deceit. And yes, he is writing it in the context of this blessedness. But what we understand about the word deceit, it, it, it's a deception, it's a disguising. And so when we think of sin, it's a, it is an unmasking here of what David is saying. There is no deceit. It, sin is being unmasked. It is being laid bare. We can clearly see who we are and what we have done. And so he says, we're sinners. And he defines it for us. And then there's another question. It's not just what is sin, but what are the effects of sin? We can often glance over that, can't we? Or in fact, give short answers. In the church, we might say sin is, well, it's sin separated us from God. Sin is what deserves hell. Those are true answers. Those are biblical answers. Culturally, we are, we're far worse, aren't we, when we think about what is sin and our understanding. Because when we say that we are sinners, what are we saying? We, we're saying we're guilty. We have guilt. And the culture says, no, you don't, don't feel guilty. That is a bad thing. The feeling of guilt, the feeling of shame, they have taken some legal term and, and turned it into some socialistic term. Pursue something other than guilty. If, if you're guilty, it's because you have, you have too high of a standard. Uh, if you feel guilty, it's because you, well, in fact, you've been imposed upon by others, perhaps even Christianity. They have imposed this standard of living upon you. You have wrong expectations. We live in such a society that often people who experience such weights of guilt are even led to medications, aren't they? Now, I'm not saying to you this evening that there's not a time and a place and a purpose for medication, but it is entirely a misunderstanding of what David is saying here. What is David trying to get at here in his understanding of sin and his understanding of guilt? Well, he's He's speaking of the effects. He's giving you a personal experience. Did you see that experience he describes in verse three and four? For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's describing physically how he has experienced the effects of sin, that he kept silent. And, and what is he describing here? He, he's not silent in the fact that there's no noise. No, there's a storm of groaning going on, but he has kept silent in that he has not confessed his sin. He has not acknowledged to the Lord that he has 
sin. It's a, sometimes it's a, what we would call a, a psychosomatic symptom. There's physical ramifications to carrying around such sin. He is wasting away. He's not giving us a metaphor. He's telling us realistically, this is how I am experiencing life. My bones are wasting away. That which God has made and is meant to be a a framework, a stronghold, that which is to uphold me and provide life to me, it's, it's being robbed of it. I'm losing energy. I'm losing vitality. Not because I'm aging, but because I have sinned and I have failed to, in fact, confess it. He is silent in his confession, not to sorrow. Did you see his description? He's, he's dried up. He's shriveling up. What is he telling you? Sin robs us of strength. It robs us of, of life. Sin robs us of energy. And in fact, if you follow David closely, it robs us of joy. And that is the point. He's trying to get you there in Psalm 32. I want you to see the joy of knowing God by confessing sin. But when we don't, we're losing our very life. And so David finishes by saying, I'm shriveling up, I'm I'm drying up. I'm wasting away. But then he continues. David defines with three words what sin is. He describes his experience of what these effects of sin are, but then he tells us something. What does God do when we, in fact, confess sin? When you read verse four, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of night or the heat of summer, It's almost this volcanic eruption when you get into verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is using the same three words that he has already described to define the comprehensive nature of sin. He's using it as a means by saying, that's how I confess it. I'm confessing all of it. I'm not holding a sin back. I'm not holding a desire back. I'm confessing all before you, Lord, that I have, in fact, sinned and fallen short. I have rebelled against you. I have distorted what is, in fact, true. But what I appreciate about what David says here is as he reminds us of those three words, we get a picture of how God deals with it. God, in fact, uses three words to describe how he responds to our confessed sin. You you see it uh, most clearly in the first couple of verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It it, it means when we talk about forgiveness, it's a lifting off. It is a taking away of a burden. It's being carried away. It's a removal, it's a, it's a relieving. Perhaps some of you, you, you think about the, the old story, Pilgrim's Progress, the, the heavy burden upon him. And upon receiving forgiveness, seeing that burden cast off, the life that he has been given, understanding that before we confess sin, we carry that burden. 
We hold on to it. And yet when God forgives, he carries it away. For me, I need to understand what does it mean, O Lord, that you carry away my sin? I don't know if there's a better picture than Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west. Have you just given thought to that? The, The impossibility of that. When are you on the west side? When are you on the east side? And that's the picture. He has gotten rid of it so far, you're never going to see it again. He does not look at it. It is so far removed that he cannot see it. He has forgiven us. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When we read Psalm 32, what are we understanding? Well, David, in his experience, says, I covered my sin. Now, there's perhaps a way in which we might cover it different than David. David might have been covering his sin in the fact that he stayed silent. He would not confess it. We, we don't want to acknowledge that we are sinners. But there's, a, there's another form of covering, isn't there? It's called works righteousness. That not only do I have sin, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to cover myself. And I'm going to do it for myself so that no one else needs to. When David tried to cover it, he wasted away. It created guilt and sorrow. And yet when God covers the sin, something drastically different happens. It's not oppression. It's freedom. The picture that we are to understand here when David says that God covers our sin, it's to remind us of Leviticus 16. That is the day of atonement. It's the picture of the mercy seat. And what would happen is the high priest would come in and he would pour blood on the mercy seat. It was to cover us. It was to cover the judgment of God over the broken law that you and I have committed. And that is exactly what we're getting. And in fact, what you find in the New Testament, this translation of mercy seat becomes the word propitiation. It's the satisfaction, it's the removal of God's wrath. That is what it means when God covers our sin. It's the gospel, isn't it? When David covers it, it leads to destruction. When God covers it, it leads to salvation. And that's what David is saying to us. When God covers your sin, he he sees it not. He sees his son. He doesn't see the sinner, Danny. He sees his perfected son, Christ, in Danny. He has covered our sin. It was a reality that St. Augustine came very acquainted with. It's said of him that this was his favorite psalm, that at his bedside, on the wall, he had it engraved. He could see it, and he could read it every single night to meditate, not with the point and the picture of focusing on how sinful he is, but to see how good and gracious God is who deals with children who have confessed sin. 
It makes perfect sense that Augustine and Luther would enjoy this psalm so much. Men who struggled with so much guilt to find what it means that God would forgive them and cover their sin. It became to them a joyful truth, a grand reminder of the gospel. We see that transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. And then verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's a phrase that in fact comes in the negative. We have been told positive things, but here comes the negative. It's something that God doesn't do. It's not just what God does do, but it's also something he doesn't do. He doesn't count our iniquity. It's an accounting term. It's, it's what we deserve. It's what we've earned because of our sin, and that is death. And yet God does not count our iniquity to us. He doesn't count it against our record in Christ. That is the beauty. That is the Pauline aspect of this psalm. In Christ, the sin of our record, it's, it's, not, it's not wiped clean as though it never happened. It's imputed to him. It's counted to him. It would be unjust of God to not punish sin. He can't just forgive it as though it did not happen. When David says, when he counts not your iniquity, he's saying he's taken your record and he's wiped it clean because he has filled his son with your record. There is a record of sin, but it's no longer yours. It's Christ's. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's where we get the word impute. It's no longer your record. It's Christ's record. And what you receive is the record of his son. And so he can see you as a child because his only begotten son has borne your sin on the cross. It's a beautiful picture. I was reading even this afternoon, just this psalm, just trying to meditate on it. And for whatever reason, I, I didn't see it as I was preparing for tonight. If you were paying attention as we were reading it, the word selah shows up three times. That, that word, uh, it, it is there to help you and I to pause. It's there to help you and I think and to meditate. But I want you to understand where that word shows up is vitally important. Look at where it shows up. It shows up after verse four. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's a moment in time in which you and I need to pause and to think about our sin, to understand what it means when we have transgressed the triune God. And then you keep reading. You can see it again. And at the end of verse seven, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You and I have the freedom because of Christ to consider the great work of God, the security we have in God. But where is the other location? It's in verse five. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know what you and I need to know? is Selah came at the end of verse five and not in the middle. When you and I read it, 
what is David giving to us? It is the certain and immediate forgiveness of God. You know, I don't live my life that way. When you sin against Danny, I really want to say, after you have said, I'm sorry, I forgive you, and I have fully forgiven you. But do you know what probably goes on in my heart? Let me think about that for a moment. Let me make sure that I'm ready and prepared to forgive you. And yet David says, God doesn't do that. He offers certain and immediate, absolute forgiveness to those who truly confess their sin to him. It's a powerful reminder of the gospel that God does not dwell on our sin. He says, I forgive it. I've covered it, and I count it not against you. You see, confession, it doesn't, it doesn't earn you and I forgiveness. Only Jesus can earn you and I forgiveness. It is, however, an essential part. It's an essential element because what is it that takes place in your heart, in my heart, when we confess sin? It's, a, it's an understanding of the gospel that it is being outpoured upon someone else that the application of judgment and justice has fallen on someone else, that what you received is the favor and blessing of God. There is a powerful reminder to us, an element, that when we confess our sin and we understand the forgiveness of God, we're not earning it, but what we are receiving is another reminder of the gospel. This is a gospel psalm. Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, some of you perhaps know him. He, I think he, in fact, is quoting from another book or another source, a story, but he tells this wonderful picture of what that means. He's describing a, a man who has just been released from prison, and he's on a train. He meets a guy, and it's the, a friend of the prison warden, and so he knew, hey, this is a former inmate, and so as they're talking, he's sharing a little bit about his story, and he's saying, what got me in here brought great shame to my family. I have I've lost all contact with them. I've, I've tried to write to them. I've never heard back. Maybe it's because they can't write or they can't read. Nonetheless, I, I've not heard, but I tried to hold on to some element of hope, and, and so I wrote one last letter saying, I'm, I'm going to get out I'm going to get on this train. I'm going to come by. And if there is room for forgiveness and reconciliation, would you just, on that one tree, the one that was specific to this family, if you just hang a ribbon, a white ribbon, then I would know. But if there's no ribbon out, I'll never bother you again. And so he's sharing this story with the, the, the warden's friend, and he begins as he's getting closer, he, all these flashbacks of, well, this is where I made the mistakes in which I've made. He, he has this anxious feeling rising up in him and he, and he says, I can't do it. I, I can't look. Please, will you just, will you look over there? Tell me what, what you see. I can't do it. And so as they, they near it, he says, it's gonna be somewhere over here. So the man turns his head, closes his eyes, and after a few moments, his new friend, he's got tears running down his face. He 
he says the tree was full of white ribbons. That is the picture of what David is saying here. When you and I understand the gospel and the work of Christ, it is a fullness of forgiveness, a full restoration, a full reconciliation. So how do we respond? How do we respond when God forgives and God covers and God counts not our iniquity? What do we do? Well, I think we remind ourselves of what David is saying here. He uses the word blessed. That is a covenantal term. He is saying, this is the gospel. This is a covenantal psalm. We read in covenants. If you wanted to read in Deuteronomy 28, you you see the blessings and the curses of the covenant of God. And David is saying, we are a blessed people because we have Christ. That is Galatians 3, that Christ hung on a tree, that we receive all the promises of such a covenant. And so David says, we have the gospel because we have a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so he says, pray. How do you respond to the forgiveness of sin? He says, pray. And he says, who should pray? You you read in your Bible, and it it didn't stand out to you for any one particular reason, but you read in verse 6, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. That word godly, it's translated hasid. Now, some of you have been learning the word hesed. It's the covenant love of God. Hasid is in the same word family as hesed. What are we hearing? What are we seeing? It is God's covenant that is wrapping his people. It's his covenant that wraps and says, you are the godly. You are the forgiven, not because of your work, but because of mine, those who trust in the Lord. And that's why David finishes with joy. How do the righteous, the godly respond? It brings you to joy. A demonstrative joy, a noticeable joy, a life-giving joy. When we understand communion and union with Christ, we can't help but sing because of what we have received. It's, it's covenant. It's blessing. You, you hear that word often at the end of worship services, don't you? The benediction. It means Blessing. And isn't it a grand reminder that the final words of your worship are gospel words? You're not told, leave and figure it out. Leave, I hope you felt good and try hard. You're given the word of God blessing you and saying, I am with you. Never leave the worship service without a benediction. Just remain until you can hear the words of God blessing you that what it will take to get back to the Lord's house, you will need that blessing and you will need that benediction. How do we respond? We respond with joy. And then he, he gives us a word picture and perhaps you and I could overlook it, but he says in verse 
9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will stay near you. When we were in college, and, and especially early parts of our marriage, um, Meredith's parents had some farmland. And, uh, and she had other family members who had farmland. And there were all kinds of funny stories. You can ask her about it. Most of them have to do with my shame. But uh, she has this farm. There's horses. I'm not a horse person. Uh, I've tried. It's not going to work well for me. They had a couple of dogs, some cows. But you'd walk down the road, and you know she had land. She had an uncle here and an uncle a little bit further. And that uncle had a donkey, a mule. And, and you know, I've got to try to entertain that mule. So I'm clapping or making whatever weird noise to try to get their attention. You know that doesn't work, right? This is not the petting zoo that you experienced at the fall festival. These are not cute animals that you just call their name and they come. When you call a mule, what does it do? It stands there. You might not even get eye contact. It's, it's foolish. It's stubborn. And that's where the proverb comes. It's a stubborn as a mule. And what is David saying? Don't be a mule. Don't be a horse. Don't be the one that has to have God force you to confess sin, force you to worship, force you to be joyful, force you to understand the gospel. Be willing by his mercy to come into his presence and enjoy the goodness of God. Psalm 1 is saying to us, blessed, and here is the way of the righteous. Here we get God's going to instruct you. He's going to teach you. He's going to counsel you. He's going to watch over you to show you and I, the children of God, the way. That's the description of the Christians in the book of Acts, isn't it? Followers of the way. And what they're saying is not do this so that you might be saved. They're saying, do this because you are saved, because you understand who Christ is, because you understand the gospel. Live like this. David is saying, there is such blessing in the confession of sin. Oh, how we would receive the grace of God and be willing to obey, willing to confess, and not be in such a position in which we need bridling to get us to walk in a righteous manner. Close with this. Galileo, uh, if you know anything about him, he was was imprisoned for his conviction on the Copernican model of the sun. And, And he was called a heretic. And when he was imprisoned for three years, they had seven different psalms that he had to meditate, recite, and read every single day. And one of them was this one. And and you can kind of see the irony here a little bit. Perhaps they were saying, we want you to read this psalm so that you will understand how sinful you are and how misguided you are in your beliefs. But you know better. Because what David is saying in Psalm 32 is not feel worse about yourself. There's great blessing. And so as Galileo week after week after week for three years, would recite, memorize, and meditate on this psalm, he did not finish in any kind of downcast state. He was led to joy because he saw what he had in the gospel. And that's what David is saying. This is a blessing 
of confessing, when we take our guilt of sin and we bring it to the cross of Christ, we're left with the all-surrounding, never-quitting love of God. Calvin says, as believers are every day involved in many faults, it will profit them nothing that they have once entered the way of righteousness unless the same grace which brought them into it accompany them to the last step of their life. That is Psalm 32. It's the grace of God sustaining you all the way through life as we understand the blessing of confession. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, this is a word of truth that we must wear. It's one that needs to sink into our life. May we be, as we have heard, some of those men who would memorize and meditate on such a truth that who we are in our fallen state are rebellious failures, distorting and deceiving what is true what is good and what is right. But as we would come to the cross and see Christ and confess our sin, what we receive is a removal, a lifting away, a covering, a free record, an imputed record because of your steadfast love to those who trust you. So I pray for us even this evening that we would be a people the godly, the covenant ones who would be that of joyfulness, a noticeable joyfulness, those who cling to grace and are not in desperate need of Britain bridle. We're not mules, we're not horses. We long to love the way of the righteous. Help us, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.